0: This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guests today are Callan Bignoli and Lauren Stara. They are the authors of Responding to Rapid Change in Libraries, a User Experience Approach. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com support or patreon.com circideas. um welcome to Circulating Ideas.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks,
2: Steve.
0: Um, I, we're having you on here today because you um, have written a new book um, together called Responding to Rapid Change in Libraries, a User Experience Approach. Um, and I was just wondering, first of all, how did you guys meet and how did you come together to write this book in the first place?
2: Well, Kellen uh, uh, and I worked together for... About three years, two and a half, three years, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was a little, a little over three years. Okay, started at in twenty thirteen, um, and while we were working together, um, we discovered a mutual passion for user experience uh, techniques and applying those to our work in the various departments. Um, Callum works with technology primarily, and I work with library buildings primarily. Um, and I got really interested in it uh, when the uh, Design Thinking for Libraries toolkit came out. I think it was around that time, or at least that's when I discovered it. And the idea, I, I was an architect first and then I became a librarian. So the idea of um applying design principles to librarianship was really, really fun for me.
1: I would say we bonded over our shared interest in user experience design. And we both were, I think that we we have very similar personalities in an agency where there weren't a ton of out of the box, creative people or thinkers, which is not, I don't mean that in a, um, to slight them in any way. Um, but that's, typically not who was on staff there. So we um, so we kind of bonded in our mutual creative misfit. Our, our mutual alienation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we both had design-related jobs. So I was working as the agency's web designer and developer and was also working with a lot of PR, marketing-type stuff. And we just one day, I, I feel like, you know, Lauren came by my my desk and presented me with the Design Thinking for Libraries toolkit. And that that's uh, something we mentioned in the book. It's an IDO publication. It's freely available on the web. I think it's just Design dot com or something, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so we we started to work through that guide together and slowly drew our circle of influence from people that we worked with in the office out other libraries in the field and started doing some conference presentations together to introduce these ideas to people. And I think that we, you know, at least in the Massachusetts library world, we, if, you know, people were familiar with the concepts of user experience design before we got their hands on them, I I don't know that they necessarily had a a lot of chances to apply that skills and techniques specifically or in the library context. And I think we trailblazed a little bit in in letting um, and giving people the opportunity to put those concepts into reality. Um, I think that something that I've learned from doing this work for a while now is that sometimes, and this was a a concern I had while we were writing the book, sometimes these things can be very highfalutin, very Um, Pie in the sky, not very tangible ideas. And I think, you know, we share, Lauren and I share a passion for having that conceptual higher order thinking, but also making sure that what we're selling to people is applicable and relevant and concrete and not just, you know, hand waving, even though I know the listeners can't see me waving my hands, but I'm doing something. (laughs) Um so that yeah I think um the the two of us just naturally collaborate really well together and Lauren asked if I wanted a co-author on the book when I mentioned the idea to her and it was an instant yes and I think you know we we both have our own specialty that we have focused on in our careers that we brought into this combination in the book And that allowed us to keep things tangible and concrete and specific with real-world guidance while also discussing the the more conceptual elements of user experience design.
0: And on the cover of the book, um, instantly you have the the two lions from the famous lions from um, New York City Public Library. Um, and then, uh, as you get into the book, you see that you guys are using the, them um, as sort of a structure for the book. Um, what what led you to um, that idea to have that be the structure?
2: I don't even remember whose idea it was, Callan. Do you? Because it just it kind of it was like a brainstorm one day. Um, I think you maybe I came up with patience and one of us came up with patience and fortitude, and the other one said. We need to add this third one, which is passion. So I think Callan hit hit it on the head when she said we work so well together, I oftentimes will forget whose idea something is. Yep, I will give a huge plus one to that.
1: One of the interesting, this is a bit of a a sidetrack, but one of the interesting things that happened while we were writing the draft of the book was that I think we often forgot who had written what sections,
2: Mm -hmm. um,
1: which was a actually quite a nice, not even a, I wouldn't even call it a problem, but a a nice scenario to be in because I know some other people who co-authored books have had a challenge with getting people's voices to sound the same in text, but I think that we do that really well. But that does lead to questions like this, where we don't even remember who up with that idea. Um, I think that for a while, though, we did share a mutual admiration of, you know, both the the Lions themselves, but also the greater branding strategy of the New York Public Library. We've mentioned it in past user experience design conversations around the consistency and importance of of having a visual brand and um, a style guide and consistent elements that carry throughout those, you know, all of your various print and online communications. And I think I, you know. I personally have always been really attracted to the ideas of patience and fortitude in libraries. Um, I remember once at a uh, Massachusetts Library Association award gala dinner when back when we had things like that in person and could be close to each other and tables and eat from the same tray of food. Um, we there was someone who made a comment while introducing uh, someone into our. State Hall of Fame, that was essentially something to the effect of libraries are forever institutions. And that is a little a little bit um, of a grandiose statement, but I do think that I have an overwhelming respect and sort of um, I put a lot of importance into the idea of sustainability in libraries. And the idea of fortitude and patience really speaks makes a lot of sense in a a sustainability context and thinking about the longer term impacts of the choices that we're making today and I think that that message comes um, across in the book as a key part of user experience design and approaching things from this perspective as well and we decided to invent a third lion passion to throw in there which um, I you know this is I I did see your question list ahead of time, so I'm sort of preempting one of your questions. But um, we, I I think, passion in libraries is a really interesting topic to explore um, because there is a temptation to address the profession with what has been now very. uh, famously and accurately described as vocational awe, which is, you know, the phenomenon of essentially, you know, viewing that librarianship is a calling and it can do no wrong and is above all, you know, you know, normal trappings of mortal evil or ignorance because we, you know, aspire to great, amazing democratic ideals, et cetera. Um, I I think with passion, you need to moderate, um, how that's shaping your approach to work and both and your own personal life, I guess I would say. Um, librarianship is not an easy job. Um, you know, we have a whole set of we have two separate separate audiences and constituencies that we're dealing with at all times, which are also subdivided in themselves. We have our co- our coworkers and we have the public that we serve, our patrons, and that makes us different than a lot of other positions and a lot of other jobs and industries. And that amount of, you know, high touch certain interaction with other human beings, you do need a, a degree of patience or, um, excuse me, passion for that, I, I believe. Um, and I think that it also helps you kind of roll the punches when the going gets tough and, you know, you need to adapt and flex and think about, sustainability.
0: I think you can, you can have passion for your work and you can love your work without, again, like you said, thinking there's no flaws in it. I mean, I think most jobs, I think if you're passionate about it, you're going to do a better job at it because that, I mean, it, it, this is a service profession, you know, we're um, helping people ultimately in the long run. So you have to want to help people. (laughs) Um, So again, again, that, that isn't, I shall help everyone <laughs> and rise above it all. And um, but yeah, like you said, a degree of passion, um, just but understanding that there are limits to yep. that.
2: So, so I just want to go back to the lions for a second be, because I think that one of the reasons we chose um, not only the structure but the image of the lion is that it is such an iconic image. I mean, you see that lion and everybody knows what it is. Mm -hmm. Everybody recognizes it as um, the lion that's outside the New York Public Library. And it is forever tied to the public library as an iconic image. Um, And I think that they are fortuitously named Patience and Fortitude. And the whole question about passion you know, I, I, can, I have to admit that I had to look up the term vocational awe. I had never heard it before. <laughs> um, now I know what it is. Um, but in terms of passion, I mean, I'm a very passionate person. I mean, I remember, I think I mentioned before that this is my second career. I was an architect first. And I will never forget the day when I got the job at the front desk of the public library, checking books in and out in a little ski town in Colorado. And um, I had decided that I was going to get the library degree. And one of my friends, she said, you're going to stop being an architect and be a librarian? I mean, like, like librarians were not as good as architects, right? I mean, there is a, a disparity in the levels of respect that those professions bring up in your mind. Um, I could never spend a third of my life doing something that I wasn't passionate about. I, it's just not in my DNA. I, I couldn't have a job where I just uh, did it for the paycheck. I mean, I feel like the luckiest person.
0: And I'm sure there are people who do have passion—the same passion that we have for librarianship for architects. You know, that, that, that's just you know, absolutely building something from nothing, and that, that's just what gets them going <laughs> every morning. Um, and, I, and I and I think um, vocational awe—I think—is a big thing on Twitter. And Callan and I spend too much time there, so
2: <laughs> I, I tried Twitter for a few months and. Yeah. I, I, I'm not even on Facebook anymore. I just, I can't. Uh, You're you're better,
0: you're better off, I think. So so, um, back to the book. Um, I I do like again that it's a user experience approach because you're, you're focusing it and centering it on the user. Um, But uh, how have customer service expectations changed um, recently? Like in the 20th, 21st century for libraries, because libraries as the need for this book uh, are changing a lot and have changed a lot over the last 20, 30, 40 years. So how have customer service expectations changed in that time?
1: Well, I think that the technology giants have had a profound influence on what people expect out of any customer service interaction now. And we have this refrain of several major competitors that we identify with libraries, which are, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Starbucks, and similar companies, um, social media companies as well. And I think the the impact that a lot of companies have had on libraries is, is that there is an ex- greater expectation from customers of instant gratification and immediate availability for things. And this is tough for libraries, as we all know. Um, we you know have a lot of different borrowing and lending models that really do not provide instant access to things and do require some patience um, on the part of the patron who's utilizing those resources. And that is, is tough, certainly. Um, But we can make up for some of those, you know, instant gratification. uh, I don't want to say failures isn't really a failure, but in the areas where we can't in instantly gratify people with a thing or, you know, an ob- a tangible object or film or book, you know, whatever, we can give them an immediate experience that is, you know, aspirationally a good experience and we can help them and, you know, provide a, a level of community and human interaction that those companies can't really provide and aren't very interested in providing. So this is clearly a little bit more true when we are open, but it's equally, you know, not, maybe not equally, but in the same ballpark um, on Zoom as well, you know, one of, one of the key differentiators between us and those companies that I mentioned is that, you know, we have story time, we do reader's advisory, we do reference assistance, you know, we pick up the phone when you call us, you can't, pick up the phone and call YouTube, for example. Um, So what I think this results in for libraries is a need to really play to our strengths and to know what we can offer that those companies cannot. And to also know that we, you know, shouldn't be putting unreasonable amounts of resources into trying to emulate those companies. Um, I personally would argue that many of those companies, in particular, Amazon, um, are extremely detrimental to our society. (laughs) And so I, you know, as a librarian, as a person who is, you know, socially, um, I I guess, socially progressive and somewhat of an activist, I do not want to emulate Amazon and and the services I provide in the library. Um, I want people to have access to information as easily as they can get it. But I don't want to, you know, engage in the unsustainable and disruptive practices of a company that has far too much money than and surveils its customers. Um, so I think that you know we we should be mindful of our competitors, but not try to um, you know carve ourselves out in their image. We take though lessons from them that we might not be able to. Um, you know, afford to kind of learn on our own. So something that we mentioned in the book is that there are many um, tech companies that have whole dedicated teams of user experience designers or um, researchers and or both. Libraries do not have that and, you know, they're never going to. I think there's probably a handful of of libraries in the country that have more than one user experience person on staff, if they even have one at all. Um, So, you know, that being said, we can kind of, pilfer a little bit from what those companies are offering. One thing that we point out in in our talks often is, you know, why reinvent the wheel in terms of web design when let's say Pinterest, who, you know, has a well-renowned, like giant user experience team, is a very large company, a very wealthy company. um, They have all of this time and all this personnel to dump into making an attractive layout and, you know, branding and color choice and button size on their login page. So why not just kind of act like magpies and take that stuff and run with it? Um, So I think what I'm, what I'm saying here at the bottom of what I'm saying is that I think we need to be really intentional and self-aware about um, how we want to emulate and adapt things from these companies that we are competitors with um, and how we can play to our own strengths to stay relevant instead of trying to keep up with impossible asks, right? Because, you know, if you compare like the Kindle Unlimited service with the wait times that you encounter, if you're using Libby or Overdrive or a similar ebook app, there's just no way that libraries are ever going to be able to compete with, um, you know, the, the amount of accessibility to ebooks that having an, a Kindle Unlimited account would get you. And it's not worth our time to try to kill ourselves to make that happen. Um, so what can we do instead to keep up with what people want, it's the question that we need to ask ourselves.
0: Well, and I think um, I think libraries have accepted the fact that um, Google is going to take all those little ready reference questions we used to get of like, we, people aren't going to come up and ask us what's the capital of Nepal anymore because they can just Google it. Right. And if they ask us, we're just going to Google it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like things like a question. So you'd have to accept that's gone, that chunk of the of library work is gone, um, and figure out, again, take the good things from what they're doing and figure out, um, like, on google's front page you know still two buttons and a search box and get simplicity out of that maybe and see a, a future de- user design so right um,
2: and i i would just add that i i agree a thousand percent about strengths. um i think um public librarians in particular have a very bad habit of continuing to do more with less trying to to uh Project an image of everything's just fine when our budgets are cut and cut and cut and things cost more and more and more. And I think that we just have to stop it. (laughs) We have to prioritize and decide what we can do well and what 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 game we want to play, because we can't play every game. We can't do it. And uh, I think that when we do play to our strengths, we are amazing.
0: So kind of speaking on that, uh, what are some ways that um, libraries can um, crack their service model um, in service of the user then?
2: Well, I think the most important thing that any librarian can do is uh, look at everything, their buildings, their website, their service uh, design, their service models with fresh eyes. And by that, I mean, forget that, forget all the years of training and experience you have with librarianship, because the public doesn't understand what we do. I mean, that's a fact. And we have to, we have to look at it from their point of view. And, and if we can't let go of all that, we have to ask somebody who doesn't have all of that to come in and help us analyze what we do and show us where the pain points are. You know, uh, the Dewey Decimal System, God bless it, (laughs) is, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, It's useful in that it's a way to organize collections, but it's not user-friendly. It's, it doesn't work for the 21st century at all. And we have to uh, recognize that information-seeking behavior doesn't follow the Dewey Decimal System. And we have to figure out how people are, are how they want to find things and um, create services that way.
0: Well, God, God, God help me if I'm defending Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> but, I, but like when, when I, I'm not disagreeing with you at all, but like when it was created, it was created for librarians to be able to find things in stacks. It wasn't designed for open stacks of, Extra, extra people coming off the street so you're, you're exactly okay. right it's not designed for that so
2: and it was created for white male europeans of yes. a certain economic bracket
0: right and, and religious and religious, um, and religious um, persuasion um, and it, it's very obviously yes <laughs> so it's got many more problems beyond that <laughs> obviously too but that, that that but that's kind of the problem of people trying to uh, uh uh, like fix Dewey or uh, spruce it up and make it to the 21st century. I mean, you can change it all you want, but it's still a bunch of numbers with decimal points and things like that. And I mean, you, c- you can better reflect culturally, but it's still going to be uh, hard to get into if you don't understand it.
1: When I first started in this library, the end cap signage for a collection was, you know, AE 100 through C 23. That was it. Like, you know, T, through, U, that was it. Nothing else. That was all. So after weeding a truly mind-boggling amount of items in the last year, um, we just put up new signage. And yes, those call numbers are still on that signage, but there's also a breakdown of five to seven subjects in very large text underneath them. So that people can start to, you know, even if they, you know, they never want to learn the nuts and bolts of classification systems, because I work at an engineering college and this is, you know, we're not training librarians here. Um, They can at least, you know, find where they're going on the one hand, but then also start to kind of do some pattern matching in their head and say, Oh, the sociology books and the books about marriage and crime and sexuality are all in the ages. So there must be something to that, you know? So, um, I I really think that uh, the concept of ambient findability, which is not a new concept in libraries, um, there was a book written by, oh my gosh, Peter, Peter Morville, um, 12 or so years ago, that encourages libraries to do things like that, that, you know, help educate our users on how to deal with navigating the space, as well as just make it easier for them to to navigate it in the first place. Um, we're also big fans of uh, Steve Krug's iconic, don't make me think. You say this all the time. Um, it's a very common refrain, but that's, I think, an especially important thing for librarians to keep in mind because we do have, in a lot of ways, you know, we have, we have changed our service model over the years, but we still do have some arcane systems that we don't, you don't see them anywhere else. Um, out in the real world, so to speak. Um, so one example of this that that I often throw out is RFID pads, which are not ubiquitous in libraries. So that's you know one way in which they're confusing, but they're also not really used for retail applications almost anywhere else in society. So um, here in the library network that I'm a part of, we have one third of libraries that use RFID technology and then the other two thirds don't. And then no other retailers in Massachusetts that I'm aware of use it. Um, consumer retailers, I mean, maybe they're, you know, are using RFID drones in like the Amazon warehouses or whatever, but you know, you're not doing it when you go to buy your groceries or anything like that. So, you know, that's an example of something that I think library workers can start to sort of take for granted or feel is just very obvious and very commonplace, but might be extremely jarring to the patron who's never seen it before either not at another library or not out in the open. So even though that's a pretty like rudimentary level of, you know, that's circulation technology. It's kind of a 101 level of technology. Um, you, you, can't, you shouldn't expect that everybody knows exactly what that is and how that works and that they're not going to need any help from you. Um, we we mentioned in the book the importance of if you're going to have self-service um, service points, like if you're going to have self-checkouts or similar you shouldn't just assume that everybody in the world is going to be able to use those machines seamlessly with no assistance from you. Um, a, because there, many of them are not accessible or ADA compliant, but B, because many people have never seen them before, never touched them before, have trouble using the ones in the supermarket, um, et cetera. So you can't just you know, stick a self-check out on the floor and, and throw your hands up and be like, all right, here you go. Now I don't have to man the circ desk anymore. So I think we need to be careful about how we balance innovation like that by not shortchanging our patrons um, with expectations that they're just going to jump on board this thing that we think is really obvious and really easy to use. Uh, But to think from their perspective and think, okay, well, maybe this person has has trouble using all technology or maybe they have disabilities that make it hard for them to use this machine slash, like, maybe they've never seen an RFID pad ever before they walked into our building today. So really adapting that patron-centered perspective on these things from the, the littlest little thing, like, you know, how you are checking books out, um, all the way up to more sophisticated services and technologies is the approach we're advocating for in the book.
0: Yeah, we've had um, RFID self check out, I think, 15 years at my library, I think. And there are still people that come up, you know, and flip their book over, start scanning, try to scan the barcodes. like, you don't need to do that. But you have to, that's part of our service philosophy is you're out there. You got to watch the self-checkout machines and um, help them out if they need help, because there's lots of people, like you said, now, a lot of times I look at it and go, that's like magic. I don't understand how that's working. And you can kind of educate them. But like you said, they don't see it anywhere else. And so it's, um, from from what I understand, like Walmart and Amazon use it for their, like, Backend stuff. They're so like they're yep. shipping, so like the big container will have an RFID pad, and it says there's mm-hmm. 500 cans of green beans in this box, or whatever, something like that. Um, but they're not they're not using it with, at, at checkout.
2: Inventory control is what. Yep.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and uh, I think it's really important to. I, I mean, one of those ways that librarians can really shine is to provide personalized service Mm -hmm. not just you know the same level of service for everybody i remember way back in the 90s when i was a reference librarian the first question i always asked somebody was uh do you want me to find this for you or do you want me to show you how to find it i mean it didn't matter to me and i think some people want to learn the process so they can do it themselves Others just want you to get it for them. And that's okay. That is, that is still just as true now
1: as it, as it ever was that there are some people who just want me to send them the effing article out of a database that they can't access. And there are some people who want me to show them some advanced search skills. Um, and, you know, it's, it is on us as, you know, as human providers of that service, to interrogate that need and what people are asking us for—that's something that, despite what you know, the big wigs at, at Google and Amazon might want you to believe, machines still cannot do that. Algorithms
2: cannot do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, and I feel like that's somewhat of a failing of um, library schools. I think I think they push that everybody wants to do the, um, teach them how to fish kind of thing. It's like, no, not everybody does. No. <laughs> I mean, yes, you should have that as an option. Like you guys are saying that if they want to learn that certainly teach them that, but our job is to give them what they want yeah. <laughs> and get, or give them what they need, whether they know what they yep. want or not, you know, but just satisfying the, the customer, the user, the patron in front of you. So, yep. um, so we can do all these changes and, um, but how do we know if they're working? So we have to do assessment, um, Can you talk a little bit about assessment and why that's an important part of the work?
1: So I'm a huge proponent of strategic plans and I have heard a lot of pushback about strategic plans in the last year or so that I really just am having a hard time wrapping my head around. And I, and I wonder if it's because, you know, A lot of people who execute them are doing so because they feel like they have to, like they pretty much have a gun to their head and they must execute a a strategic plan and create it and get it out there. Um, I don't really, personally, I don't know how I would operate my library without a strategic plan. And I I want people to try to think of how they can sort of reevaluate their approach to them in a way that makes them feel similarly. That makes them also say, hey, I don't know how I would do what I'm doing if I didn't have this plan in place. So that, you know, within the, the context of a strategic plan, usually there is an element of um, action planning, which is like what we call in Massachusetts. I don't know if it's called other things elsewhere, but essentially you list out objectives that you are intending to do in a certain time frame, usually a year that have a direct relationship to what you have stated is your mission and vision and your strategic plan. And I think it's, that's a great way to um to to get change to happen and to sort of take the the more um, pie in the sky values and mission stuff and and actually make that into a tangible um ob- objective that people can fulfill and finish or you know begin you know the process of creating or however you want to put it um and I think that you know, the yearly process of going through that list of things you aspire to do in a year and saying, okay, well, which one's, which one of these things did we accomplish? Which one of these things did we try? And maybe it didn't work out super well. Um, which ones of these things do we definitely want to keep pressing on with is a pretty simple way to get yourself into a cycle of trying and, um, Tinkering around with things in a given year and seeing which ones of those things sink or swim. Um, I think that the, in much in the same way that you like when you embark on trying to establish a mission and a vision and a strategic planning process, you go out into the community. I hope, <laughs> and you do, you know, surveying and focus groups and spend time with users. Um, you know, you want to continue to include those users in the evaluation process of what you're doing to gut check whether or not it makes sense for you to keep doing something. Um, you know, you can do that through quantitative data, like, you know, program attendance or circulation or whatnot. And you can also do it through qualitative data by just asking people if this is something that they think they want to see you continue to do. Um, and I think just getting into a, a mindset of knowing that, you know, you shouldn't be planning out for more than two or Three years at a time, you know, or maybe at the very most four or five, but preferably more like two or three, um, you know, you shouldn't be doing hugely long-term planning processes and you should build in a sort of natural, um, assessment process where you are stopping periodically and looking back at what you've done or what you haven't done or what you've stopped doing and saying, okay, like, what if this, what does this make sense? And if you don't have the ability to answer that on your own, then that's when you want to make sure you get your community involved. Um, Though hopefully you're, you're doing that anyway, because you know, the whole hope here is that all of those additions and changes and, you know, things that you're tinkering with are, are things that your users are telling you they actually want you to try to do versus you just deciding you're going to do them because it looks cool.
2: And I I would agree with everything that Callan said, Um, but I would also say that Callan is talking kind of on the macro level. And for me, assessment is equally as important at the micro level. And when you look at the whole design thinking concept, it's about ideation, iteration, prototyping, testing, refining, you know, it's, it's a cyclical process. And one of the things that we say in the book is it's never perfect and it's never done. So if, if you like, like Helen said, the waterfall, I'd never heard that before, but you know, a project is not a beginning, a middle and an end. It's a circle. It's a circle that keeps going. And if you're not constantly evaluating everything that you're doing and and refining it and tweaking it and testing it and either saying this just isn't working anymore or it might work if I change it this way. I mean, it's just a, a daily process of assessment constantly.
0: So um, as, as we're becoming uh, more um, comfortable with a change, with with change in our environment, um, we really need to make the environment one that's inclusive, and that includes not only the hiring process, um, but then the, you know, the work environment that those people would be stepping into, because we don't want to say, oh, well, look at this great hiring that we've done. And then they get plopped into a situation that's um, still lacking um, in many key ways. So can you talk a little bit about the benefits of centering inclusivity?
2: Well, I'll just I'll just say that this is an area that I am really on a, a heavy learning Process right now about because I am I am shocked at the level to which I have blinders. I mean, every day I realize another aspect of life where I have a very specific point of view and I'm not inclusive. So I'm doing a lot of self educating in that way. But I think you know, just bringing up the the as an extreme example, the whole Dewey Decimal uh, system again. It is. It's very exclusive and it doesn't um, give equal space to uh, different points of view. And I think for a profession, talk about vocational awe, for a profession that thinks of itself as being open access, you know, free and equal, democratic, we're incredibly close-minded. I think. Um, I think it's starting to change, but we're not there yet. So I'll say a few things that I, I hope I can
1: tie into one cohesive response to this. So one is that we are still looking at in in excess of, you know, somewhere between 80, 80 to 88% white profession uh, in librarianship at this point. Um, those numbers haven't significantly changed in the last decade, and that speaks volumes about, you know, our stated mission of inclusivity and access to all. Um, I, you know, I will say that, like, I am a white middle-class cisgender straight female, and I benefit from a large amount of privilege in that space, especially within the context of this field where predominant leadership um, class is people who are like me. Um,
2: and Except mostly male. Sorry. Yeah, that, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah.
1: Also, that that's another another fun part about librarianship too is that men tend to accrue in leadership positions at a much higher rate than females. Um, so, you know, I I myself know that I have blinders and cognitive biases, and that I grew up in an, a very white place in a um in a very uh, politically conservative place. And, you know, that I, even though I have done, you know, I, I can, I'm on a continuous journey, like Lauren mentions too, of trying to crack away at those blinders, there is some degree of them that I cannot surmount as a person who, you know, benefits from all of the privileges that I benefit from. And so that is going to fundamentally undermine my ability to serve all members of my community. In virtually any setting in a library today, whether you're an academic librarian, whether you're a public librarian, Um, I think you know one of the one of a very powerful figures that's often stated with this is the very very few African American librarians there are in a country that you know proportionally is um, you know there's there's a much higher uh, amount of Black people in the U.S. than there are Black librarians, and I think it's like over. twice as it's like a three to one or something. Um, and so, you know, it's at this point in my, in my career and understanding the impacts of my privilege and what that can help me do or help others achieve, you know, one of, one of my key goals personally is to do what I can to, um, you know, try to cut away at that enormously overwhelmingly white number of people who are in the field. And, um, you know, one of the ways in which, you know, I, I try to do that is, um, you know, to, to mentor and foster people who come from non-traditional backgrounds who are interested in librarianship and, um, I, in another way is by, um, you know, uh, understanding that I have this, this privileged point of view and position in libraries now and trying to encourage my colleagues to adapt a similar, um, mindset to trying to, uh, you know, untangle all of those blinders that they are, you know, that they also experience and to challenge them in a way that is going to be more comfortable for me as a white straight lady than it would be for for someone else who doesn't benefit from the privileges that I do um but I do think that you know it is past time for librarianship to really critically ask itself why it is that we can't shift that number of um you know 80 to 88% white librarianship why is it that that is not changing at all like who where do we need to um you know sort of focus those energies like is it at the ala level is it at the library school level is it both Um, is it sort of a reassessment of the credential because of you know the various um financial constraints that are tied to demographics in this country that um make it more challenging for people who aren't white middle class ladies to get their master's degrees Um, there, to me, that's a very, very, that's a very large conversation that I think is very much long overdue. And, um, you know, I'm trying to do my best to add my little voice to that conversation, but, um, you know, that's going to be some heavy lifting for us to try to figure that out.
2: I just wanted to say that I think that it's not just recruiting people into the profession. It's, it's remaking the pre- profession to include other cultural point of points of view because uh, you know people can get hired but when it's an environment where they're not comfortable and welcome they're not going to stay so hugely important yeah
0: well and I, and I think what 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 people like the three of us on this call <laughs> um, need to realize is that we do have that privilege, like you said, and accept that and leverage that to change things because we do have power. So we can use that power. Um, I'll, I'll throw the Spider-Man with great power comes with great responsibility kind of thing out there. <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, we can, we can use that power. Don't just say, Oh, well, you know, I, I accept it and like, well, oh, then use it. <laughs> um, so a, a lot of the book, um, to, we're kind of pivoting to a different t- topic here. <laughs> um, so we're talking a lot about change and one of the rapidly, most rapid uh, areas of change in librarianship and anywhere, I guess, is technology. Um, and you devote a, a good chunk of the book to that. Um, I know that's one of Callan's specialties. Um, <laughs> can, can you talk about some of the bigger issues that libraries are looking out for when we're um, talking about change management in technology?
1: With technology and libraries, I feel like, you know, the number one thing I want to point out is that I don't really think we're in a time of rapid technology innovation at this period. I don't think that, you know, we're not going to get another iPhone level of disruption in how consumer tech influences our lives. You know, maybe, I'm definitely not going to say we're not ever going to have that, but it definitely feels like we're at, a pretty sustained lull in terms of, you know, giant disruptive technologies coming on the scene. Um, So I think that in the, in the interest of trying to, um, you know, be responsive to user needs and to be flexible in our space planning, we need to think about technology from the perspective of what are patrons actually coming to us to do and how are we, Making that as easy on them as possible. So I think that, you know, not overcomplicating things and not trying to be everything to everyone are, you know, kind of two of the main, you know, this is true in every aspect of, of service in the library, but I would say very really specifically in technology, especially if you are interested in and your community has shown interest in doing things like creating a makerspace. You want your tech people to be freed up. To help with fun, innovative, service oriented, educationally focused tasks and not in a dingy basement updating, you know, Windows patches until, you know, the cows come home. And I I mentioned this because there's a, a library in our network. I don't know if they still are doing this, but I remember visiting a library in our network once. Who had three technology librarians who would bring all of their towers downstairs to this windowless basement and go through this whole process of updating all this stuff. And it would take them like weeks to do it. And it, it just like blew my mind because like, I would never have had the ability to do my job at all if I had to do that. And all of the other, you know, kind of more innovative, interesting service oriented things I was trying to do in my position would have been totally impossible. So, um, I think, you know, even though, you know, people's financial situation in the library obviously varies very widely and, um, you know, the vendors that may be out on the market for different types of technology change all the time, what consistent advice I can give here is to think about how many people do you have working on technology in your library and how much of their time is being spent doing, like, you know, stuff that isn't really advancing the, you know, the service goals and mission of the library. Um, and how can you change the workflow that you have? Like you might, you know, you might've had a vendor that you've used for 15 years and you really like them and you know, it's going to be a huge pain in the butt if you change to somebody else. And so you might feel really stuck with them and like you have no choice, but to just keep on with them. But you got to let go of that thinking um, and, and think like, how are people going to benefit from not continuing to do this the old way and to consider some new ways of approaching it. I also want to mention to you that um, I think it's really important for libraries to cross-train people in every aspect of of the job, really, but very specifically in technology. Um, There are many, many libraries that have a solo technologist or they have like a reference librarian who also does technology stuff when they have time and they're not on the desk or something like that. That's not cool. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Um, you know, you, there, and there are ways to do this without hiring a, a scat of new people. You know, one thing that I did in my last job was I created a cross departmental technology committee. And this helped me in so many ways, because on the one hand, everybody knew what I was up to all the time. So often technologists can be somewhat um, reluctant to, you know, to share what they're working on or updates that are coming down the pike or anything like that. This made sure that nobody was being caught unawares by stuff that we were working on that was going to impact their jobs. Um, And it also helped me see things from their perspective, made it easier for me to find out, okay, well, if I need to install this update, I should do it from you know, 7 to 8 a.m. before the pages come in to start um, dealing with the delivery that comes in at 8 o'clock. And it gave me like a a kind of user-centered approach to being able to be their technologist, as well as, you know, how I was trying to help our patrons. So that also gave me some boots-on-the-ground help when I needed just extra hands to help me get things done. Um, I had a a group of people, six or seven people throughout Who you know? This was a three-building, very large main library, Um, and so we, you know, were able to deploy people um, much more effectively, easily, and um, instead of just having me, you know, driving around in my the the car, the town Prius, which was you know my um, vehicle at the time, um, from branch to branch, we actually had people at each branch who were able to to help me. carry the load. And none of them were technology people. Um, none of them had that specifically listed in their job description. Some of them weren't even interested, in, weren't even sure if they were interested in doing any of this, um, but we got them there. You know, it, it was, it was possible. It just required some patience and time and just repeated assurance to them that they weren't going to break anything. Um, but yeah, you need more people to help with this than just, you can't get away with just one technologist in, in 2020 anymore, Um, Even if you do have a really simple stripped down computer system or printing system or whatever, um, it's just going to be way too much work for that person in almost every context because of how disproportionately large the technology component of doing library service is at this point.
0: Um, In addition to technology, um, physical spaces are something we need to keep in mind to stay flexible and adaptable. Um, And and Lauren, this is um, a good place to mention, I think, a project that you've recently worked on where you were um, outlining some best practices for space planning. Um, That project was called Library Space, a planning resource for librarians, and there will be a link to that in the show notes here. Um, So how did that project come about, and what was the underlying need you were kind of trying to fill, and what... Why do you see physical space as something that we really need to be considering um, as we move forward to the future?
2: The The challenge is that bricks and mortar is, well, it's not permanent, but it's built, it, you know, buildings are built to last for 50 to 100 years. And buildings are very expensive. It's not reasonable to... Uh, expect that you will be able to do a major renovation on your building every time there's a change in service model. It's just not realistic. So the word that I say, I don't know, 400 times a day is flexibility. And I I, I really believe that we have to have flexibility as the uh, foundational concept of everything that we do, both in service design you know, in the way we do our our work, the way we operate our libraries, but also in our buildings. So um, this project, Library Space, uh, a planning resource for librarians, I'm so excited about it. It's been in the works for almost a year and a half. And we worked with Sasaki, which is an international architecture and planning firm Um, to put it together and do the graphics for it Um, the need was that there there just aren't any standards for library buildings anymore I cannot tell you how often I get asked the question how big should my building be how big should my collection be how much space do I need for x y and z And the problem is that it just isn't possible to have an easy formula for that. Every community is different. Every community needs different library services. And library services need to be tailored to uh, the needs of that community. So rather than trying to come up with standards of, you know, you need X number of square feet for every person in your town, That's that's the question I get asked most often. I have a population of 15,000. How big should my library be? And there is no way to come up with a standard like that. So we decided at the Mass Board of Library Commissioners, after doing a lot of research all over the country and even into Canada to see what kind of standards were out there, um, we decided to develop the set of best practices. Um, And What it does is it starts with components. So let's say it's a component like a study room or a children's playroom or a staff office or a bathroom, and it outlines the space requirements for all of those components. And then it puts things together into uh, little sections like the children's section or the seating and collection section or the staff section uh, and then it builds on that and it puts those sections together into what what they call prototypes. Um, We also uh, picked 13 libraries that were recently built in Massachusetts using the funds. Um, the grant funds from the Mass Board of Library Commissioners, and uh, we did a detailed analysis of each of those 13 libraries. Each of them is a good example of at least one of the concepts that we talk about. So um, we also have a section where we have uh, topics of interest like sustainability, flexibility, accessibility, uh, site considerations, all the sort of major components of uh, library design. So we really hope that people will take a look at it. We hope that people will let us know what they think because if this is not useful, I mean, I think it's gonna be very useful. The, the The reviews so far have been pretty good. We really hope to get some feedback on how people are using the tool because we think it's going to be very helpful. And even though it's based in Massachusetts, we think it will be um, useful to libraries all over North America.
0: So, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Um, there's lots more in the book that we didn't get to. Um, we had our list of questions. We didn't, didn't get through all of those even, and that, that was even just an overview of the book. So, lots more in the book to um, find out about. So, take a look at that. Um, again, that's called Responding to Rapid Change in Libraries A User Experience Approach. Um, but if anybody listening would want to follow up with you guys, how could they get in touch with you?
1: I am on Twitter. And my handle is Eminence Font. It is a very subtle pun on, on Eminence Front by the Who. And you can also send me an email. And uh, my name is really tough to um, to hear correctly and spell correctly. So I think you can just uh, look in the show notes for. for that.
2: And I I am not on Twitter, <laughs> um, but. I am available by email and uh, it's interesting, both Callan and my emails are the same format. It's our first name dot last name at gmail.com. So that's pretty easy to do. Correct. Well, thank, right. you, thank you so much. This has been, I, I, I was a little nervous about this, but um, you know, Callan and I, when we get going, we can really talk. <laughs> Yeah,
1: I'm sorry. I know I was going on a lot. Um, But thanks for giving us the opportunity to. It was really fun.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and um, letting people know about the book. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests interviews visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify overcast or your podcast app of choice and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review you can follow the show on twitter at circ ideas or like the show's facebook page theme music is by pamela clicka and the logo is by shandy fry thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas Well, we'll we'll wrap up with that. So, if you have <laughs> the same, maybe don't
1: put that in. <laughs>